This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Bahamut You know something is odd. You can feel it. Certainly the white-haired, snaggle-toothed old man sitting atop the hill before you here, so deep in the wild hinterlands, seems out of place. And the odd way that seven small yellow birds sit amongst the wildflowers, alert and watchful, seems very odd. But there's something very disarming about him. Charming, almost. The old man wheezes. <laughs> Thank you for driving off those orcs. No doubt they would have made trouble for me. Did the birds just twitter? Were they laughing? You are a very brave warrior. And I appreciate bravery. Perhaps a reward is in order. Come, kneel before me. Although his voice remains that reedy, hoarse, old man voice, there is a command in it that won't be ignored. Something that speaks directly to your mind, your soul. And suddenly, the hilltop is consumed with radiant white light, and a massive dragon sits atop it. You can barely see it, for the light is almost blinding, and you whisper in wonder, Bahamut. Here at the Word of the Week, we love video games almost as much as we love tabletop role-playing games. Well, that's not entirely true. Some of us love video games, and some of us seem a bit indifferent to video games, perhaps even unimpressed by video games. But through the magic of referring to ourselves by a collective pronoun, we can claim we love video games because it makes a good introduction. Besides, those of us in control of drafting this script are the ones that love video games. So, here, at the Word of the Week, we love video games almost as much as we love tabletop role-playing games. And that's not odd. After all, many, many, many video games owe huge portions of their mechanics, concepts, and lore to tabletop role-playing games. In fact, when E. Gary Gygax, the godfather of gaming, passed away, Mike Merles, lead designer of Dungeons & Dragons at Wizards of the Coast, was trying to explain the magnitude of Gygax's contribution to a group of his video game-playing friends. He talked about all sorts of things, culminating in, if you've ever chosen a race and class in a video game, you know Gary Gygax. And video games and role-playing games have a lot in common. They are both unique forms of interactive storytelling which invite the audience to participate as the protagonist in the story. 
and they both face a lot of the same design difficulties, balancing freedom of choice with mechanical and narrative concerns, how to strike a balance between risk and reward to stay exciting and avoid frustration, how to create a rich, detailed experience while still remaining approachable and understandable, and so on. And so, there's been a lot of cross-pollination over the years. Video games take stuff from RPGs, for better or for worse, and RPGs take stuff back from video games, for better or for worse. But that cross-pollination leads to an interesting game of telephone. Or, in the modern parlance, a purple monkey dishwasher problem. And since we love historical, cultural, and mythological wordplay as much as we love pop culture references, which is almost as much as we love video games and role-playing games, let's briefly address the phrase purple monkey dishwasher. While it has become a sort of non-sequitur answer to a question, a bit of gibberish you can spout to answer a question when you don't know the real answer, its meaning is more complicated. In an episode of The Simpsons, Bart Simpson starts a rumor by whispering it to a person at the end of a line of people. We're all familiar with the concept of the game of telephone. You have a line of people, one person whispers a phrase, and then the listener whispers it to the next person, and so on. When it gets to the end, through mishearings, it has changed substantially and lost all of its original meaning. In The Simpsons, the rumor Bart started actually got through the whole line unchanged. It survived verbatim, except that it inexplicably had the phrase purple monkey dishwasher tacked onto the end. And to balance out the fact that we're discussing the etymology of internet slang whose origins go back to a Simpsons episode, we'll point out that verbatim comes from the Latin and means word by word. There. Now we're classy again. But getting back to the original point, whether you love video games or D&D, you probably know the name Bahamut, or Bahamut, depending on how you like to pronounce it. But we here at the Word of the Week, which is to say those of us who read and record this script prefer the Bahamut pronunciation. So that's the one we're going with. And we all agree that Bahamut is a big honking dragon. He might be the king of all good dragons. He might be a summoned god-being from the cosmos who waits his turn to launch Megaflare at hapless palette-swapped moon imps. Or he might be a weird ancient dragon of pure chaos worshipped by a cult in cyber Los Angeles. But he is most definitely a dragon. He is not, for example, a fish. Which is weird, because Bahamut is totally a fish. Let's start with the incarnation of Bahamut that is a cloud of ones and zeros. Most video gamers know Bahamut from one of the umpteen bajillion Final Fantasy games. Bahamut is what they call an Aeon, or an Esper, or a Summon, depending on which game you're playing. Essentially, your character can learn a magical spell that will summon Bahamut a massive cosmic dragon. He'll play this overly long intro cinematic, and then he'll launch an attack called Mega Flare, in which, basically from orbit, he will rain down a blast of white-hot plasma that burns with the heat and light of a thousand suns. Then, 
Some numbers will pop out of the enemy indicating that they've lost about one quarter of their hit points. And then you'll vanish back into the cosmos. Because for all their pomp and circumstance, most Final Fantasy summons are just basically the same magic spells any old wizard can cast with a huge amount of over-the-top pomp and circumstance and an unskippable six-minute cutscene. It's kind of like going to Las Vegas to watch a stage magician. There's a lot of glamour and glitz and lights and music. But in the end, it's still the same card trick your nephew won't stop showing you from Magic for Dummies. But in the earliest Final Fantasy, the one which didn't even have a number because the lead designer thought he was going to lose his job because his employer was bankrupt, in Final Fantasy nothing, Bahamut was not a magical summoned fireball spell at all. Instead, he was the king of the dragons and lived in a castle, and if you proved your bravery, he would let you power up from a basic class to an advanced class. And this is where we make the jump back to Dungeons and Dragons. We know that the earliest video role-playing games like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy and Ultima were all inspired by Dungeons and Dragons, partly because there's a lot of jargon in common and a lot of common mechanics and game elements, and partly because the game designers of these early games pretty much admit it outright. And by the time of the first Final Fantasy, Bahamut was the Platinum Dragon in D&D. He was the god of the good-aligned metallic dragons. At the time that Final Fantasy was rescuing Hironobu Sakaguchi's job at video game publisher Square, the edition du jour of Dungeons & Dragons was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. The first one. But AD&D didn't have a number because they probably never envisioned an AD&D 2E or D&D 3 or 3.5 or 4 or Essentials or 5. The Manual of the Plains by Jeff Grubb had just hit the shelves, and it detailed the cosmology of the D&D multiverse. And in the description of the Seven Heavens, it explained that the dragon god Bahamut dwelled on the seventh layer of the seventh heavens. Heaven number seven. But maybe he lived on the first or fourth layer, or perhaps he actually lived in the elemental plane of air, no one was sure. And that little detail goes back to the first mention of Bahamut as Bahamut in a D&D product. In the AED&D Monster Manual, the Platinum Dragon was given the name Bahamut. He was the king of all good dragons, and he dwelled somewhere beyond the east wind, according to the manual. It then went on to explain that that might be metaphorical, or it might have something to do with the elemental plane of air. Because Bahamut was a shining beacon of law and justice and right, he might also dwell in some plane betwixt the seven heavens and the tri-paradises. And that is the purple monkey dishwasher moment. Bahamut existed in D&D before the AD&D Monster Manual. 
but he didn't have a name. In the 1976 supplement one, Greyhawk by E. Gary Gygax and Robert J. Kuntz, two regal dragons were named. The King of Lawful Dragons and the Queen of Chaotic Dragons. With an odd minor pot shot at the women's liberation movement included as a parenthetical. The King of Lawful Dragons, the Platinum Dragon, is pretty much Bahamut, except without the name, and that's important. Why? And what did we mean about fish before? You might think that a super-powerful dragon god dwelling beyond the east wind must definitely come from some mythology. And Bahamut certainly does come from some mythology. But Bahamut was never a dragon. And he never lived beyond the east wind. Bahamut was a cosmic fish. According to Arabic folklore, Bahamut was a massive fish with the head of a hippo. He was so unimaginably huge that the very sight of him would shatter the mortal mind. And he had to be huge, because he held up the earth. Bahamut swam through the endless, airy void of the cosmos. And on his back rode a great, many-headed, many-legged, many-eyed bull called Kujata. And Kujata carried a great ruby on his back. And atop the ruby was an angel. And the angel held up the heavens and the earths. And no, that plural was not a typo. Because according to Persian folklore, there were seven worlds held up by that angel. Seven different earths. And that cosmology is also a part of the Islamic faith. There are precisely seven passages in the Quran, the Islamic scripture, that mentions that there are seven heavens. It is suggested that each heaven has its own particular set of rules and laws of nature. And it is also mentioned that each has a companion earth. Seven heavens, seven earths. By the way, that seven heavens thing, well, that got borrowed by Dante Alighieri, who we've mentioned before in the third part of his divine comedy, Paradiso. And that is why D&D has the seven mounting heavens of Celestia. The interest in the cosmology of the universe led to extensive study of astronomy throughout the Muslim world, starting around 850 CE. In fact, it was the observations of Persian astronomers that revealed that various orbits, the orbits of suns, moons, and planets, were not circular at all. Rather, they were elliptical. They also discovered something called the precession of apogees. An ellipse is basically what happens when you stretch a circle out and give it two centers. And the sun, or whatever, is at one of those centers. So a planet, like Earth, isn't always the same distance from the sun. But what's really interesting, and what remained unexplained until Albert Einstein came along, 
is that the closest point moves around the sun. The whole affair is a bit wobbly, so if you trace the orbit of the Earth around the sun over many, many, many long ages, it loops and curls in a flowery sort of pattern. And if you ever had a spirograph toy as a kid, you know what we mean. So how did Bahamut, the cosmic fish at the bottom of the stack of things that held up seven different Earths, become Bahamut, the platinum dragon? Well, we don't know. It appears that Gygax, or one of the other people who worked on the monster manual, figured the king of all good dragons needed a name. And the name Bahamut sounded like a good name. And thus, Bahamut is now a dragon wherever Bahamut is called Bahamut. But Bahamut is an interesting figure in D&D despite being a purple monkey dishwasher. For one thing, he wasn't the only dragon god. Around about the second edition of the game, they started giving out pantheons to every race. It wasn't enough to have an elf god and a goblin god and a dragon god. Every race needed a collection of gods. So Bahamut was one of the children of the supreme dragon god Io. He had several siblings as well. Tiamat, the queen of chaotic dragons, who you also might know from Final Fantasy. Felizur, the dragon god of death who you might recognize from the low-budget and underappreciated sequel to the terrible Dungeons & Dragons movie, Wrath of the Dragon God. And Cranepsis, the dragon god of time, who lives in a shrine filled with hourglasses that measure out every dragon's life. Which will be familiar to you if you've ever seen all dogs go to heaven and replace dragon with German Shepherd. But the D&D incarnation of Bahamut does have one interesting tie to mythology. And, apart from using Bahamut as a god as usual, this comes into how you might use him in your game. According to the AD&D Monster Manual, Bahamut spent a lot of his time wandering around the world disguised as a crazy hermit and his seven gold dragon bodyguards would accompany him disguised as canaries. The monster Manual even contains an amusing anecdote from a sage who encountered the hermit and his canaries and would never have known it was really the god-king of all dragons and his dragon court if a group of ogres and trolls hadn't happened by and started making trouble. And this is actually a common feature of the sort of polytheistic mythology that D&D employs. The gods were always going around in disguise, and the story of Bahamut, as an old traveler, with seven canaries, might be a reference to Odin. Odin, the king of the Norse gods, had hundreds of identities. He liked to travel among people disguised as an old man and gather news. He also had two pet ravens who would fly around the world every day and gather information for him. What about your world? Do the gods ever take on mortal guises and interact surreptitiously with mortals? 
maybe to test them, maybe to tempt them to corruption, or maybe just to screw around with them. You have all these awesome gods available in your world. Why leave them as cinematic flavor text that power a few spells? Come on, you can do better than Final Fantasy. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.